Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm tired. I mean, I'm Brenna. Oh, tired. It's good to have you here. Our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the tecumseh territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sewetmagulu. And it is a beautiful day in Sewetmagulu here, Joe. I have to tell you, it is like blue skies, sunshine, like that perfect early winter day. Uh, Nice. Okay. And it's not helping. (laughs) (laughs) I've had the blinds open all morning and they've been like shining in my face. And normally that has like a really like restorative effect. Right. But I think, Joe, I mean, you and I both have jobs that are very tied to the rhythm of the semester. Yes. And uh, we're recording this at the beginning of December. Mm-hmm. It's not a happy time of the year for us. <laughs> this is a challenging time for us. Yeah, uh, it is. folks, before we started recording, we were just talking about some of the general woes of trying to, <laughs> I think, power through what yeah. has been an exceptionally difficult year, but particularly for the line of work that we work in, which is supporting folks who are teaching, and a lot of them are teaching for the very first time. It's just been a very daunting project this semester and we're coming to the end of it but it's also hard to feel that sense of optimism that we might normally have going into a holiday season yeah it's really true i'm actually gonna try to take some actual time off during the holidays because i yeah i'm feeling like no you need it you need it i am not my best self right now (laughs) but i bring it up because like we were talking off the top of the show that this is a complex and difficult text and um I want to give it my best. And also, I'm not sure I'm my best self today. So I'm sort right. of feeling like, I don't know, I just feel like I want to tell people like I'm a little bit like off my game off the top of the show today. And I have a group with me. So, okay, you know, it's going to be an interesting show. I mean, you often have a group with you and that's always fine. It's usually fine. all right so folks we are talking about funny boy our second last book and film adaptation of the year the book is by shyam Silverdare, and uh, the film is by deepa meta so like Mm -hmm. we've got two pretty like heavy hitters the gifted creators and Mm -hmm. uh, some robust text here like there's a lot going on in both of these texts and a lot of contextual backstory that we are definitely newbies too yeah so that's actually another good kind of contextual piece that we should acknowledge off the top i think the controversy has been leveled primarily at the film and we'll touch on that when we get to the back half of the show but we do want to acknowledge that we have done some baby toe dips into the historical lore surrounding these two texts so that we can understand what the context was like in sri lanka in the late 60s through to the early 80s Mm -hmm. but obviously these are experiences that fall outside of our own self-identified communities so we are coming to this with relatively uninformed eyes Mm -hmm. yeah for sure so the backdrop of this book is the sri lankan civil war and also i think almost the film more than the book the tamil diaspora is a big component of what's going on in the background here and Mm -hmm. I found actually reading about this really interesting because I knew that Canada had a large Tamil population. I didn't know why. No. (laughs) So that was really interesting. And I I knew that the Tamil people had been 
like oppressed in their homeland and I knew that there was a lot of international controversy about whether Tamil tigers are Mm -hmm. like a terrorist group or freedom fighters or something in between but I really enjoyed the humanization of a community that I really know nothing about in the book in particular. Yes, I found it much stronger in the book. And I feel, I mean, again, we'll get to it like always, but I do feel like the film, by sheer virtue of being a film and not a miniseries or even a TV series, unfortunately suffers from some condensation that has resulted in a Coles Notes version of these really important historical moments. And that was disappointing to me because I really, like, honestly... This was a great read and an okay film. The film is quite messy, and I think part of the issue is it's a novel, but it's actually really structured a lot more like a series of short stories. Like any yes. one of those pieces is pretty self contained. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they're all doing different things. So the book is sort of like largely about the protagonist, Argy's coming of age. Mm-hmm. But it's also very much about the political contexts of Sri Lanka during the Sri Lankan Civil War. Yes. And after the film. It really just wants to focus on RG and his queerness. And while I appreciated that as a queer person, I'm always happy to see more queer stories. And particularly in this case, it was a kind of story that doesn't often get told. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also was frustrated because I felt like that was a less interesting story to tell. Well, the film, I think, makes a lot of assumptions that you know enough of the backstory to make connections. Yes, and that is not true. It's not true. I think to the people who lived it or the people who are directly connected to it, absolutely. But like, here we are as Canadians. This is a vital part of our history. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the same boat as you. I literally had only ever heard of Tamil Tigers. I grew up out West, as people probably know from some of the other episodes. Mm-hmm. And I had 100% had this filtered through a very conservative, reactionary point of view. So mm-hmm. I 100% was like, oh, yeah, Tamil culture is just like synonymous with terrorism. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's incredibly far more complicated than that but like canada has not done a good job of educating its citizens on this issue no which is interesting because there are other diasporic communities in canada that have i would suggest integrated more fully into like public life like i'm thinking about the huge representation of say the Sikh community in like federal Mm. politics for example and i don't think the same thing has happened for the tamil community although they are a large community in this country and yes canada's population of tamil people is i believe larger than anywhere else outside sri lanka maybe even including sri lanka so it's interesting to me that this story has existed at the margin of my own understanding of canada Mm mm-hmm And for that reason, I was really grateful to this book and the storytelling. You know, it's all about ethnic tension and trauma and how communities develop and fracture. And Mm -hmm. it's very powerful. And then the film is just kind of there. Yeah. (laughs) I really had difficulty separating this adaptation. Like, I know we sometimes talk about, oh, I wish we had to watch the movie or watch the TV show before we read the book, because that might have really changed the way that we looked at it as a text. And I feel like if I had have watched this movie before I read the book, I would have been so confused. Yes. There's just too many shortcuts being taken in the film. As you said, 
it presumes an understanding of these really, really heady, complicated notions between two warring communities within a country that has been colonized by the British Mm -hmm. and is suffering from colonial trauma that has seeped into its populations. And I think the film is trying, but as you said, it's messy. And just watching the film by itself, I would be afraid that people would either misunderstand or even misconstrue the nature of the conflict. It's interesting, too, because Deepa Mehta has a really long history with this book. So the book came out in 1994, which is Mm -hmm. longer ago than I thought when we started. Me too. I thought it was a 2000s text. Definitely. And then in 2006, Deepa Mehta produced a radio dramatization of the novel for CBC. Oh, okay. And then this film comes in 2020. So that's like, that's a really long time of thinking about and engaging with this text. And Mm -hmm. instead of making it an enriched experience for the reader or for the watcher, sorry, the viewer, it almost makes it like she has too much shorthand with this story and she doesn't know what we need to be told. Yeah, she has been so embedded with it for so long that she's familiar with all of the intricate bits. And then she tries to synthesize that into an under two hour film. Yeah. And things are just getting lost. But I guess we should talk about what the book is about beyond the broad brushstrokes that we've done so far, hey? Yes, because I do think that this is also, this is a very important book to the Tamil culture and the Tamil people, but I don't know, aside from its literary awards, I don't know how familiar people will be with this book. I know it's definitely taught in a lot of post-colonial literature classes, but by the time you get to post-colonial literature classes, you're like pretty embedded in like an English degree. I was (laughs) going to say, that's a very specific stream. (laughs) It's real, real niche. Um, So yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a book that deserves a much broader reading. So Joe's right. It did win several awards in 1994, including the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction and the Books in Canada First Novel Award. Mm. It's not a novel. (laughs) And I don't mean that. I don't mean that as a criticism. It really is a series of sort of discrete short stories with linked characters. And I I think that's important because... Yeah, I'm wondering why you're leaning on this so heavily. Because I really wish the film had leaned into the self-contained nature of the stories rather than trying to interweave them. Because I actually don't think they interweave very successfully. No. It makes for some confusing choices because some characters become maybe all-encompassingly important in the film in Mm -hmm. ways that really change the central conversation of the book, I think. Agreed. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, so there's six pieces to the novel. And... I'm going to talk about the sort of discrete like thing that's happening and the characters in each one as briefly sure. as I can. Yeah. So the first one is called Pigs Can't Fly. And this is, I would say, the most typical coming of age component yes. of the book. Yeah. This is when RG, who's our boy protagonist, he loves playing bride. They call it bride bride. They play wedding <laughs> as children. And he likes to be the bride. Yes. And in Pigs Can't Fly, RG's father sort of comes to realize that RG has been playing bride and playing as the bride. And it's where the title of the book comes from, this idea of being a funny boy, right? Being queer. Mm-hmm. And RG's not allowed to play with the girls anymore. And that's sort of the central... That's how we meet RG, right? We meet mm-hmm. RG as this already kind of outcast figure who loves and gets along with his sister, who doesn't really trust his brother, and his brother doesn't really like him very much. Yep. And RG is devoted to his mother. And in that first story, we have this fracturing that happens between them because Mm -hmm. she sides with his father and stops allowing him to like engage in the sort of 
more highly feminized things that he enjoys, like watching her get dressed. Mm-hmm. I am fascinated by the mother character. Me too. Absolutely fascinated. Me too, because she is fascinating. Because in the second story, you kind of think you're going to have this replacement for his mother when we mm-hmm. meet Radha Auntie, who mm, I love. I love Radha Auntie. She's one I love a lot of these characters. I'm yes. not going to lie. One of the things that they talk about in the synopsis of the book is this idea of like, these are really kind of family sketches, like sketches of really vividly articulated characters. And uh, mm. Radha Auntie is like a classic example of that. She and RG have this really close relationship because after RG loses that connection to his mother, Rada's auntie sort of fills in the gaps and allows him to do things like put on makeup with her and she gets yeah. him involved in a play and stuff. Very much the surrogate mother, but it's mm. not as simple as that. No, because Rada auntie has been, she's sort of engaged, promised, betrothed to mm-hmm. a fellow Tamil, but she is falling in love with a Sinhalese boy who she can't be with right because this is where we really get that introduction to the idea that the tamil and the sinhalese people they tolerate each other but the tension has been brewing for a very long time and it is certainly not appropriate to have romantic relationships so you kind of have this sense of this figure who's going to like replace the maternal figure in his life but then that gets fractured too because rg really wants rada auntie to like buck tradition and marry the Sinhalese boy. And of course, Mm. she can't. And then she and some other Tamils are attacked on the train, and that really puts the end to any kind of burgeoning relationship with this Sinhalese boy. I think importantly, too, for me, the second story, from the perspective of Archie, it really changes the way that he looks at love, Mm -hmm. because he's still factoring in his perception of what marriage is through the lens of bride bride. Yeah. And when Radha Auntie is introduced, he's like, oh my gosh, she's going to get married. This is so exciting. It's and she's letting him plan life. the wedding, right? And yeah. He's like loving it. And then he realizes, oh, bride bride and marriage isn't fun if the person isn't actually in love because love is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So when Radha Auntie ends up falling in love with Anil, this boy that she meets while they're doing the play, The King and I, mm-hmm. you know, she's truly in love there. And mm-hmm. It's really hard for RG to understand why people who are in love can't be together. And this is obviously like informed by his burgeoning queerness, but it's also giving us that look into the conflict that's brewing within Sri Lanka. Yes. And that concept of love and trying to understand how adult love works plays right Mm -hmm. into the third story, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, which is where... Daryl Uncle appears. <laughs> Daryl Uncle is like the man that Argy's mom wishes she had married. <laughs> yes. She clearly had a former relationship yeah. with him. They broke it off and then she ended up marrying Argy's dad. And you get the impression that it's not that she and his father don't love each other. It's just that it's a marriage like a perfunctory relationship like they can do everything that they need to do to survive and make it work but it's not a passionate relationship and then when daryl uncle shows up you're like oh here comes the sparks yes and rg has this i don't know it's almost this freudian moment with his mom because 
he gets really sick and his mom takes him to the countryside and he thinks that they're going to have like this perfect time together, just the two of them. And it'll be more like in the days when he was allowed to like watch her dress and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then guess who comes to the countryside? Yeah, it's always so disappointing. Yeah, and so Daryl Uncle appears and they, they kind of live like an old married couple almost for this period of time while mm-hmm. his father is on this business trip and he's sick. And it's this really complicated thing where RG's trying to understand, like, he sees how happy his mother is with this man who's not his father. Yeah. And it's I super also find it fascinating that in both of these situations, so in the second story and this third story, RG almost becomes the pawn in mm-hmm. adult relationships where he becomes the excuse that people use for their clandestine romances. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, in both of these stories, there's a relationship with somebody who is an outsider to the country. So Rada Auntie is betrothed their promise to a Canadian man. Mm-hmm. And Daryl Uncle is a Tamil, but he grew up in Australia. Mm-hmm. Like there's tensions within the country of Sri Lanka, but then also the way that the culture kind of percolates out and how that gets, I don't know, like reinterpreted or how it changes the way that people act. Well, and particularly for the Tamil people who are increasingly unwelcome in Sri Lanka in this period and increasingly seek opportunity elsewhere, mm-hmm. but also who seem to be more, and this is history that I don't know, yeah. but it seems like the Tamil characters integrate more easily into the colonial structures. So like yes. it's the Tamil characters who typically go to Europe for business trips or to England for school or to Australia or Canada to live. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be part of the tension and the distrust and the complexity of the of the narrative. Yeah, and it might be useful at this point to also note that Chayam Salvadurai is himself a Tamil Canadian. So yes. the book is written in a very pro-Tamil yes. fashion as a yeah, result. Absolutely. The other thing that happens in See No Evil, Hear No Evil that becomes useful is we start to get a sense of the geography of RG's understanding of Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. So the family lives in Colombo, which is the capital and is mostly, or the commercial capital, I guess. And it's mostly safe for most of the book, right? Yes. And I think the Tamil people who live in Colombo are traditionally more well off. Mm -hmm. And the idea of what the Tamil tiger resistance slash terrorist movement, however you choose to define it, the idea that I got was that they were not a significant presence in Colombo because Mm -hmm. it is like a more affluent almost like a political center as well, right? So Mm -hmm. there's this idea that Colombo is a safe zone and Honestly, it reminded me a bit of like the capital and the Mm. districts in the Hunger Games, where it's like things don't always reach the capital, but the real action is happening outside of it. And there's this other city that we first learn about in this story, Jaffna. And that city is was at the time the Tamil majority Mm -hmm. city. And so we frequently have our characters and their families navigating between Jaffna and Colombo, but Jaffna is substantially more dangerous Mm -hmm. yes and gets increasingly more dangerous and it's as the novel progresses the violence gets closer and closer to colombo until it's sort of on their doorstep but for a long time through the book it's like you go to jaffna and bad stuff happens there but if you stayed in colombo you would be safe Yeah, and this is what happens to daryl uncle is he is a reporter he goes to jaffna to investigate things missing people 
and he never comes back. His yeah. body is found on the beach. So this is also the first taste that we get that the police cannot be trusted because they are majority Sinhalese. And the title comes from the fact that there's sort of the family tries to pursue, or well, Amma, his mother, Archie's mother, tries to pursue finding out what happened to Daryl Uncle through like a civil rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. And even the civil rights lawyer is like, not in Sri Lanka. We're not yeah. investigating this. Like, if you want to survive what's going on in this country right now, you should pretend like you see no evil and hear no evil, right? Yeah. And I do like that Ama is... She's fiery. The reason I said she's fascinating is because I didn't expect her to be having an affair. No. And also, I didn't expect her to be politically, not radicalized, but like engaged. She's unwilling to allow the status quo. Like she wants to get to the bottom of things that are important and happening to her. But of course, her husband is like, I'm a successful businessman. You need to like clamp down on this. That's exactly it, right? Like, she seems like a very stereotypically framed sort of submissive wife in the first story where she's willing to kind of like reject Argie to keep peace with Appa. And that's really painful. But by the end of the book, she's like Mm -hmm. disagreeing publicly with Appa about the way he's dealing with the Civil War. And she's vocally expressing sympathy for the Tamil. She's suggesting that they need to, to emigrate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because as RG grows, so too does she. And we get yeah. quite a more rounded sense of her. And that political stuff comes to bear in the fourth story, Small Choices, which is when the child of a friend Appa went to school with comes to live with them and comes to work at Appa's hotel. And it's important to Argy's sexual awakening because he's very attracted to this young man. Yes. But it's also important to the political dimensions of the book because this young man has aligned himself with the tigers, may align himself again with the tigers, and Mm -hmm. Appa has to make this decision, like, do I support this boy who's effectively a part of my family, or do I throw him out to appease the hordes, basically, because they're, like, vandalizing his hotel and stuff? I think it's interesting that you phrase it that way because, and I know you're going to agree with me when I say this, but I saw it as Appa is clearly just in self-preservation mode. Oh, yeah. He is worried about his family, but it always seemed to me that he was more concerned about his business and protecting his wealth and his privilege. And I very much get the sense we're not, we're not meant to like Appa. No, I don't think so either. I mean, that's what he, exactly what he does. He kicks Jigen, Jagon out and he breaks up all ties and basically this young man is like well i guess i'll go back to being a tiger and you're like oh yeah okay appa is this the choice you're making for him yeah like he basically seals his fate of this young man yeah we don't like appa no but i did quite like this story if only because rg is such you know, he's he's gotten to the point now where RG himself is becoming an interesting character in his mm-hmm. own right. It does take a while. It does take a while. And one of the things that's fascinating is that this is far more of an observer protagonist than I'm used to. Typically, we have active agency yes. with our protagonists. And in RG's case, he spends more than half of this book just watching people... Mm-hmm literally watching people like he hides under windows and listens to conversations he's peeking through doorways and it's a really interesting way to frame how information gets distilled Mm -hmm. to someone who doesn't always understand what they're hearing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i totally agree 
I don't know what your childhood was like, but I spent a lot of time hoping nobody could see me because I was listening mm-hmm. to the adults have like adult oh, conversations. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have very clear memories of like even at friends' houses, like sitting on the mm-hmm. stairs mm-hmm. and like eavesdropping on parent yes. conversations and stuff. Absolutely. And so it's in many ways like more fun to read a young adult book about like a young teen who does cool stuff. But it's even though obviously RG and I have wildly different life experiences, it was very familiar to me to connect with the observer this way. Yeah, I was honestly astonished how easily I was able to integrate myself into the universality of Mm. this novel. Mm -hmm. It was a completely foreign culture. And yet I could immerse myself in this and understand what was going on because so many of these relationships are really relatable. Yes, they really are. It's a very, in many ways, a very common story of family, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Growing together and growing apart and the kinds of people you connect with. And I really enjoyed it. I also, I found it hard to get into at first. And I think it was because I wanted something a bit more grippy. I wanted something to carry me away a little bit more just because of the headspace that I'm in. Right. I won't lie. That first story I found quite rote and a little too familiar. And then, you know, you realize after the fact, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. But I also feel like it's kind of the least important. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about the film, but like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think the film centers too much on that story and ignores all the more interesting things that are happening yeah i don't disagree okay so let's get to this fifth one yeah the fifth one the best school of all is really sort of the queer coming out story for Mm -hmm. rg um rg's father sends him to victoria academy because he thinks the school will force rg to become a man he's very concerned about rg's latent quote-unquote funniness yeah and uh rg meets a boy and starts having sex with him (laughs) Yeah, basically. And then, of course, the the political dimension doesn't completely go away because no. there is a battle for the future of the school between the Tamil students and the Sinhalese students, but also mm-hmm. the principal, who is referred to as Black Thai. And I did think it was interesting that Black Thai tries to use colonialism mm-hmm. as a way to keep his power Because I'm so used to colonial stories being about terrible things. And in a way, Black Tie is such a complicated character because he's awful, objectively awful. Yes. And yet we can also see that he's doing what he can to try to preserve what he thinks is an important piece of the culture that's at risk of being washed away by a dominant majority. Yeah, because the whole idea is that like Black Tie is cruel. He's not an educator. He's not kind or good. Mm-mm. But what he is, is willing to make the school relatively safe for the Tamil students. Yes. And with his leaving will come basically the eradication of the Tamil students from the school. They will have mm-hmm. to go to a separate school. And Argy's family is really adamant that Argy go to a Sinhalese school so that he's educated in the Sinhalese language. Like, he yes. doesn't even speak Tamil, we find out in this story. Mm-hmm. And that his family's position is that his integration in the larger society is, like, the only thing that matters. So it is complicated because Black Tie is awful. He abuses these children. Like, so he's badly. terrible. And yet, if Argy doesn't defend Black Tie's honor by reciting these extremely British poems about <laughs> private school life. Ooh, so awkward. The school will fall into the hands 
of this man who will destroy the Tamil students entirely. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting continuation of the same conflict that we had seen in the previous story with Jagon yeah. and Appa, right? Where it's like, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, but it's like, are you willing to make hard decisions? The other important thing in this story, of course, is that Shihan is Sinhalese and RG is in love with him. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me that like, his burgeoning queerness is obviously a problem for his father. Yes. But it's um, there are almost moments in the story where it's like, RG's shame is about the fact that he is realizing he's gay. Mm-hmm. His shame is also about the fact that he's in love with a Sinhalese boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's like, which one's worse? <laughs> yeah. And like, and which one's worse like varies depending on who he's worried is going to catch them or who he's worried is going to find out about them. Yeah. 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 And then we get to the last one. The Riot Journal. I actually think that this part is handled pretty decently in the film, but in the in the book, it's sort of this breakdown of the experience of the Civil War effectively descending upon Colombo and the family having to flee to Canada. And at the same time, Argy is leaving his first boyfriend and the person for whom he discovered his sexuality. So... He's leaving his homeland, but it's almost as though the physical objects and the space have nowhere near the same kind of impact as leaving Sheehan. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a jumbled narrative because it's scribbled. I mean, the the sort of conceit here is that it's being scribbled in the moments of safety as this riot is encroaching and then kind of overwhelming them and forcing them to leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it's also the shortest of all the stories and it doesn't end where i thought it was going to end like there isn't actually a real proper climax in the way that we would come to expect it like there isn't a dramatic conflict it's really okay we had to make a late night escape to the neighbors we managed to survive this equivalent of a great purge Mm -hmm. the house is destroyed they have to move in with relatives they bounce around. Things look like they're going to get better. They don't. And then Emma puts her foot down and says, okay, we're going to go live with Radha Auntie and mm-hmm. we're leaving Sri Lanka forever. Mm-hmm. It just ends with RG bicycling to his burnt out house and realizing, okay, that was my life and that stage of it is over. And it just ends. Yep. It's shockingly non-dramatic, and I for sure thought that we were going to see something about them adjusting to life in Canada, or like, you know, what does it feel like to get on that plane? And it was almost disappointing to see that executed in the film, because I felt like there was a lot of power to just leaving it as, eh, the book is powerful in its refusal to try to emotionally go out with a bang. So I kind of read half the book. And then Joe and I were lucky to have screeners so that we could record this before it actually drops on CBC Gem. Yes, or Netflix if you're in the States. Or Netflix if you're in the States. So we we were lucky to have screeners, but it was a different screener experience than usual. We had a 48-hour window (laughs) to watch it. Yeah. And the 48-hour window started like in the middle of my workday on a Friday. So by the time I actually had a chance, I had like a 36-hour window to watch it. Mm -hmm. So I ended up watching the screener before I finished the book. Oh, interesting. Okay, so how did that change the way that you saw the end of the book? There's something very like uh, Canlit scholar, lover of a good heritage moment, like oh, deep I see. Okay. in my soul that really yeah. liked the arrival in 
Canada and the moment between Archie and... Oh, it is nice when he gets to Rada see Auntie. Rada Auntie again. Yeah. 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 So part of that was like, oh, that tickled all my like liberal notions of Canadianness, right? It almost feels like a Christmas commercial as well, it right? Does. Like the family coming home for Christmas. We didn't think we were going to make it. We get to embrace in the snow. Oh, I fully expected someone to like bust out a mug of Tim Hortons. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> it had that vibe. <laughs> and so I say all that saying it's a pretty saccharine, pretty uncomplicated, mm-hmm. pretty troublingly simplified scene in the film, but also yes. like kind of scratches a little bit of an itch. Okay. When I got okay. to the end of the book and I was like, They don't even get to Canada? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. No happy ending for you. No resolution for you. No. And in retrospect, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a much stronger ending for the collection. But there's a part of me that was like, it's really nice when they hug. (laughs) Well, and maybe that's the difference, right? You really wanted to emphasize the fact that this is a novel that is more akin to a short story collection. And maybe that's the perfect way to end a short story collection. Mm. Whereas in the film where you don't have those divisions, that's a better way to end the film. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It's, um, I don't know. I liked this collection a lot and I wanted the film to do it a bit more justice. All right. Well, let's talk about that, shall we? Okay. Now, you have to find a way not to let these boring people rob you of your precociousness. What you've got to do is this. Don't mess with the grand diva. Don't mess with the grand diva. Yes. Sonali, would you take Arjun as your lawfully wedded wife? I do. Arzi, would you take Sonali as their lawfully wedded husband? I do. Different is wonderful. He's your funny boy. And you are different. You're a pansy, a sissy, a fan. Welcome to Victoria Academy, Arjun Shelvaratnam. Every human creature is constituted to be that profound secret and mystery to every other. Hi. So who cares if he's Sinhalese, Amma? I like him. Auntie will never be allowed into any of our houses if she marries a Sinhalese. I saw you both. It's dangerous and it's illegal. Women and children all butchered simply because we are Tamil. I just can't. We don't want you here anymore. So, what do we do? Alright, so as you mentioned, Funny Boy is a film by Deepa Mehta. So, Deepa Mehta, for folks who are unfamiliar with Canadian cinema, she is probably in like the top five of our Mm -hmm. most important Canadian directors. She's made some really famous ones. Uh, A lot of people are familiar with her Three Elements trilogy. Mm -hmm. So, what is it? Water. Earth, water, and fire. Yeah. Water's the biggest one, I think, hey? And water is gorgeous. Like, yeah. if you're only going to check out one movie from Deepa Meta, I would say check out water because it yeah. is stunning. So this is adapted by Salvadore himself as well as Deepa Meta, which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Principally for the reason that you identified before we played the trailer, which is that I really did think it was going to be a smarter adaptive choice to keep the six 
tell it as a collection yes. as opposed to one through narrative because I think you lose a lot of power by trying to tell this as just a story. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so we have a bunch of actors. I didn't actually recognize any of these folks. So we have RG, who is played by two different actors, uh, a Rush Nand when he is a child, and then Brandon Ingram when he is a teenager. And then his love interest, Sheehan, is played by Rahan Madinagyaki. Sorry, I'm going to butcher these names. And then we've got Emma is played by Nimi Haraskama, and Appa is played by Ali Kazmi, and then Radha Anti is played by Agam Darshi. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of these people are very well cast. Now. I was going to say, you sure? You sure that's where you want to go? <laughs> I think that they're well cast in that I think the performances that they're giving are good. The performances are actually all beautiful. There's mm-hmm. nobody in the film who I'm like, mm, I don't buy it. Like, I, yeah. they're all really beautiful and they all connect to their characters really beautifully. Like, I really was persuaded emotionally, even mm-hmm. when I didn't think the film was doing a very effective job as a whole. Yes. This does lead us into our first of two controversies around this film, which is that there is actually only one Tamil actor who is cast in this entire ensemble. And a lot of people have said that that has directly influenced the way that Tamil is spoken in the film, to mm-hmm. the point where Deepa Mehta did a roundtable where this was brought up in a accusatory fashion and she defended herself but also they ended up going back and redubbing or re-recording a lot of the tamil spoken words to the point where they even swapped out one actor's voice with somebody who could speak tamil better and this is a case where representation matters significantly Mm -hmm. and can also go completely unnoticed to the people who are not aware of the implications like I wouldn't have known. Yeah, so Tamil is a language not spoken exclusively in Sri Lanka or exclusively in the diaspora, but it's spoken elsewhere as well. And in fact, even when the film went back for its dubbing, its post-production dubbing, it went to India for the Tamil dubbing. Mm -hmm. And so that repaired some of the issues where like, apparently, frankly, the Tamil was unintelligible in some places in the film to Tamil speakers. But even with the dubbing, it's not... It's apparently still not great. Yeah, Yeah. it's apparently not Tamil as Tamil is spoken in Sri Lanka. It's Tamil as Tamil is spoken in India, which is dialectically different. And for source material that is so profoundly about like identity and the Mm -hmm. diaspora and what it means to sort of leave home, it's kind of painful. Well, particularly when you're aware of some of those issues in the book where there's literally passages about how RG has to go to the school so that he can learn how to speak Tamil as well as Sinhalese. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, but the film then doesn't speak Tamil as it is spoken in Sri Lanka. Like, that is a huge issue. And it's interesting, too, because as part of Deepa Mehta's sort of defense of herself and the choices that she made in making the film, she makes the point that homosexuality is still illegal in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Finding Sri Lankan Tamil actors who were willing to be in a film about homosexuality was a really complicated ask and that she had cast some, but the fact that they had like refugee status meant that they couldn't get visas to make the film in Iran, which I believe is where it was filmed. (sighs) 
all of that is like totally mm-hmm. valid. Yeah. Like the arguments that she's making are not untrue, but also yeah. As a result, this artistic enterprise is compromised to yeah. the very people that it means to represent. I think it's especially problematic because this book is so vitally important to the Tamil people. Like it has been, I don't want to say it's a canonical text, but it is the text for the Tamil people mm-hmm. since its publication in 1993. Like people have been waiting for more than two decades for this film. And when it comes out to then be like, oh, the language has been butchered. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. Yes. I think that's the main controversy. The, the second smaller controversy, although I'm sure it matters greatly to some people, is this idea that Deepa Mehta has worked closely with someone who has helped to propagate the genocide. Yeah, I misspoke. So the film was not filmed in Iran. Deepa Mehta made... She made another film. Yeah, she made Midnight's Children, which is the go. adaptation of Rushdie's film. Rushdie, of course, was under a fatwa by the Iranian government. Mm-hmm. The Iranian <laughs> government complained... Yeah. The Sri Lankan government intervened on Deepa Mehta's behalf. behalf yeah. But the person who intervened on her behalf kind of been accused of like war, war crimes. crimes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. So, so when I said that this is the <laughs> so smaller controversy, oh it's because a lot of people feel like Deepa Mehta should not have been working with this individual at all. Mm-hmm. And of course, her defense is she's kind of gone back and forth. In some cases, she said, well, this film wouldn't have been possible to get made without. And then in some interviews, she said, I've literally never met this person. And then in other interviews, people have said, well, we didn't meet them. But obviously, to film in a country, you need to get the highest offices to sign off on it. So there's some murkiness going on here. And she's also pointed out that like, if you're going to work in a country like Sri Lanka, which is still unpacking its own war-torn history, mm-hmm. you're going to end up working with people on either side of a conflict. Perhaps that doesn't mean you agree with either side, but you want to get the story told. And again, it's not that she's wrong. It's not that that's not true. It's that it makes the film itself more complicated. Yeah. It's hard to know But it does feel like some of this tension and some of these challenges have found their way into the finished product. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is a less than polished, less than ideal version of what we would hope to get out of this story. We should note that Deepa Mehta is not the only person who's been on the receiving end of controversy because of this film. I don't know if we've mentioned Ava DuVernay's production company. We have not, no. Or her distribution company is distributing the film in the U.S.? Mm Mm-hmm. And there was at least one critic published a piece in the Globe and Mail saying that considering Ava DuVernay's consistent positioning on on-screen representation and accuracy of on-screen representation, she should have asked more questions before taking on the distribution of Funny Boy, which I find really interesting because I feel like Ava DuVernay has been asked to clean up like everyone's mess. (laughs) I'm also interested to know whether there would be these questions if Ava DuVernay was not a powerful black woman. This is what I mean, right? Like, it doesn't seem... Why do we hold influential, powerful women to a potentially higher standard or a deeper level of critical interrogation mm-hmm. than we maybe do with their white counterparts? Is that what you're suggesting? It is what I'm suggesting. Like, we, okay. have, yeah. we have covered no end of films with controversy on this show. Mm-hmm. I have never seen anybody go in the Global Mail and, like, challenge the distributor. Nope doesn't happen and so the fact that 
Ava DuVernay has to wear what are, as we've already talked about, like contextual choices that Deepa Mehta has made that may well be completely valid, but that folks have had issue with. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre to me that the distributor has to wear that as well. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. Because I, I thought the same thing. I, I was shocked that that was a point of contention. Like, yeah. And I'm thinking there are far more controversial things. And yet I've heard nary a mention of them with other texts. Hmm. Yeah. But here we are. I know. And part of it is that Ava DuVernay is a big name, right? So it's like you draw that into your yes. your news story because you will get clicks, etc. Yeah. And it seemed like the controversy only just recently came out as the film was about to be released. Yeah. I only saw these stories pop up in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know, by the way, that this book was optioned before? I know that someone else had tried to bring it to the screen. Do you know who? Uh, Somebody else that I thought would have been an interesting choice. Now I can't recall. It was Gorinda Chada who made Bend It Like Beckham and Bride and Princess. Yes. Yes. I kind of want to see that movie, Joe. Right? (laughs) Okay. Well, let's, because we've done it again, where we've not actually talked about the film. We've talked about around the film. Okay, sorry. So as we mentioned, this is presented as a streamlined single story. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. Now, Brenna, you mentioned that you felt that the film spent too much time on the first story. And I don't 100% agree with that. I think it dedicates a fair amount of time to it, but I actually was surprised at more what the film adaptation elides from the book. Yeah, I guess what I mean by that is is that I think that the film takes the themes from the first story oh, I and extends okay. them out to be the thematic focus of the film as a whole. Yes. Okay. And that is a mistake. It is, yeah. Because honestly, this film, what we get is a mostly pleasant, politically tinged coming out story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And I think the problem is, is that if you don't know the context of the Sri Lankan Civil War, which I was shocked to learn ended in 2009. 2009, Brenna. This is a civil war that went on for 26 years, and I had no idea. No, I know. I know. My ignorance on this week's episode is making me, like, profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> Which is probably an okay thing. It's okay. It's okay yeah. to be uncomfortable. But when you're ignorant, it's actually the right thing to feel. Yeah. <laughs> but in the case of the film, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, it definitely makes assumptions that you know some of the background. Like it, it paints it in broad strokes so that you understand there's two different warring populations within the country. They don't like each other. Some of them have different forms of power like the government and the police are Sinhalese. Uh, a lot of the high-ranking businessmen are Tamil and there is conflict about wealth and privilege and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the one that frustrated me the most is that we don't get Amma's story with Daryl Uncle. Yes. Because it just gets folded into Radha Auntie's story and yes. that gets played out in a far more sensational version. Like, the book is always told from RG's perspective, so we don't get to see things that happen outside of his point of view. Whereas in the film, there are a couple of different instances, and they're often violent incidents. Yes. Where we'll cut away so that we can see Rada Ante get stabbed on the train. Yes. And it was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. It's interesting because so much of the book is actually about what RG hears and doesn't see, right? Yeah. 
And so when the film chooses to expand it, the focalization, which I get, I mm-hmm. get. Yeah, I get it. But it loses some of the power. It loses a lot of the power. Yeah, yeah. I do think that the romance, because it takes center stage, this is a tricky adaptive choice, right? You have to distill something down if you're going to only make a single feature. Mm -hmm. And the decision to maybe focus on RG as the through line and him finding love amidst conflict, it seems sound in theory. And I think the love is actually very sweet. And like these two actors have great chemistry. They really do. (laughs) It's a love story worth rooting for. Don't get me wrong. It's just. It's a much smaller story than the book promises. Yeah. And I think that's inherently problematic when so much of the power of the novel is coming from the historical context and the grounding of an intimate story amidst a larger backdrop. And the problem is, too, that I've seen films do this. It's yeah. a challenge. I mean, you sometimes you end up with a Pearl Harbor as opposed to a Titanic. Yeah. But it felt too often like this film was making safe choices, mm-hmm. but also safe choices that were wrong. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and safe choices that didn't serve RG's character growth either, right? Mm-mm. He's a surprisingly flat character in terms of the growth. Flat, which is a shame because he's lovely to watch. Like his yeah. facial expressions and his, I don't know, he's he's very charismatic. The actor mm-hmm. who plays him is very charismatic in a way that made me a little nervous at first. Because uh-huh. RG's not that charismatic, but he's very good in the role and. I enjoyed watching him very much and I enjoyed the chemistry between them and I I wanted it to be about something more than it was. Yeah, it was also weird to me too that if you're going to lean into the queer aspects, so like obviously RG and Sheehan like tend to dominate a large Mm -hmm. part of the story, but the character of Jigan Mm -hmm. is still in here. Yeah. And Jigan is a a really significant character in RG's sexual coming of age because... This is where RG realizes he's attracted to men. Yep. And that moment isn't in the film. Nope. In fact, okay, the whole Jigan story is kind of weird in the film because... It doesn't work. Well, they kind of conflate the Daryl uncle story here too in that yes. it kind of seems like Amma's into him. Oh. Yeah, because she's so willing to bend over backwards to like uh, try to get him out of jail. It's, it's weird. Mm-hmm. Because their relationship isn't clarified and no. I was like is she like does she like that younger man she like that very young man like what is happening here yeah i was yeah. i was really actually disappointed in how that character was used yeah again these broad strokes right where like two characters have been condensed into one and as a result they don't ultimately do either justice mm-hmm. now just to make sure that we're clarifying this is not all bad no i do want to highlight that one of the things i really liked is Although the storytelling is quite a bit more opened up because we do see things outside of Archie's point of view, I love that most of this film is shot in interiors. Yes. We're still getting this idea of kind of like a privileged, enclosed world. Yes. Archie is, I don't want to say naive and idealistic, but like he's lived a very privileged life. Totally. The house porn expanded to include that hotel oh my god yes hello vacation i would love to go there right now (laughs) seriously beautiful it's all interiors right like it's all parlor rooms and Mm -hmm. dining sequences and hallways and i love that that matches the interior life of what these characters are living Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean it's a very pretty film shockingly enough deepa knows how to produce a very 
gorgeous looking film. It's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I just, um, I found the storytelling really messy. I think that's yeah, the word for me. I agree. And I really wanted, I just wanted a clearer sense of the complexity of the world. And I felt like if you didn't know anything about Sri Lanka going into the film, you would miss entirely the political ramifications of Argy's coming of age. Whereas in the yeah. book, those two things are, are seamless. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why the book is so successful, because it really is seamless. Those mm -hmm. two stories cannot be removed from one another. Mm -hmm. They're so intertwined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so one final moment before we do YA bingo. Mm -hmm. Seems weird to YA bingo this, by the way. I know, I don't, yeah. I don't think we're going to do well either, so it's fine. No. I wanted to give a quick shout out to the scene in the film from which the text takes its title, because mm -hmm. I thought, for me, it was one of the most powerful moments. Mm -hmm. So when RG is still a little boy, and he's told that he can't play Bride Bride anymore by his father, he's sitting on this little stool just to really emphasize the power differential between his father, who's sitting at a table and chair, and the way that this little child actor oh he's so cute a russian and the way that he questions why is being feminine a problem it's so heartbreaking and really that is a universal queer experience for mm -hmm. specifically gay boys is being told like you are not masculine enough and it's not okay but i also can't tell you why it's a bad thing there was a lot of empathy in that moment. And I think that Arushnan just plays it so well, so yeah. heartbreakingly well. Yeah, I agree. Okay. okay. So let's turn to some YA bingo for Funny Boy. Bingo! Not a good bingo. What have you got? Um, I have, for the very last scene of the film, the territory film in the territory now known as Canada. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Only that bit, but. Welcome I got to it. Toronto. <laughs> Um, uh, you already said house porn. I did, yes. I'm going to give one to musicality because the film is gorgeous to look at, but it's also beautiful to listen to. Mm -hmm. I have a Netflix connection because of where it's being distributed oh, yeah. in the US. Right. We can put in abuse for yeah. the black tie sequence in the book. Of course, of course. Okay. I don't know that I have too many more though. No, I don't think I do. Because there's a dead body, but he never actually sees it in the book. Right, yeah, because that's the problem with Daryl Uncle. It's mm -hmm. just a body that may or may not be him. Yeah. Okay, so... Not a great week for the bingo. No, kind of knew that going in, though, didn't we? I think so. Because if nothing else, <laughs> this feels familiar in a lot of ways, but this is unlike a lot of the other texts that we've read. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not just because it's like, you know, set in the historical past and also because it's uh, almost like a foreign YA in a lot of ways. But mm. honestly, it was adult and it was yeah. a really refreshing read. It was very, I think the first thing I texted you about it was it's very literary. Yeah. Beware, it's very literary. At the time, I was like, I don't feel like reading something literary, but I'm really <laughs> glad I did. <laughs> oh, actually, I do have one more. Coincidental oh. classes, because he does read oh, yes. Wild in the book. That's right. Oscar Wilde. Yes. Okay. So, Brenna, take us to the socials. Right. 
Okay. Um, if you want to talk to us about Funny Boy or anything else, you can find us on the hashtag HKHSPod on Twitter. Joe, where do I find you? I am at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And you can get us with long form stuff. Uh, you can find us at HKHSPod at gmail.com. Yeah. So with respect to minisodes, we do have a bit of a plan and we're probably going to announce it in next week's minisode where mm-hmm. we're looking back on the year that was 2020 and we promise Ugh. that we're not going to focus too much on COVID, although <sighs> obviously when we talk about big stories for the year, <sighs> it's kind of a dominant one. Want me to stop making this noise into the microphone now? Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> Uh, but also in that episode, we'll talk a little bit about what's to come in 2021. Folks who like reading, maybe some, some promising stuff for you on the horizon. Folks who like reading. Well, <laughs> it's an adaptation podcast, so some yeah. people may prefer the TV shows and the movies more. That's true. We do have something for the nerds out there. <laughs> and our next full-length book, if you want to go find it from your library now, is S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders. I am actually super stoked for this one. I am worried. I have not read this since high school. Yeah. And, I mean, we're talking about a Francis Ford Coppola film. Yeah, we are. So this is uh, an interesting way to close out the second year of Joe, the podcast. Joe. Joe, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. the second time on the show that we're going to couple a feel. Oh my, oh, okay, you're done, you're done. <laughs> it's delightful. Until next time, I'll see you on the page. No, I will see you on the screen. Couple a feel. Oh, <laughs> just absolutely terrible. <laughs>